This morning we will be looking at Matthew chapter 5. Matthew is the first gospel, the first book of the New Testament. And our text this morning is Matthew chapter 5 verses 13 through 16. And we'll also look briefly at 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12. I count it the greatest privilege in the world to be able to preach. And that's because I have the blessing of having the text preached to me all week as I prepare. And I pray that the Lord would set this text upon your heart. It is a powerful text. It is very simple what our Lord says. But it is a great challenge for us to put into practice. And so if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient, and the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Matthew 5, beginning at verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And now 1 Peter 2, verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. O Lord our God, we come into your presence, Lord, And we are thankful that you have given to us your word. But Lord, we are also aware that we are unable to understand your word. Unable to be moved by your word. Apart from a work of your Holy Spirit. And so we ask, Lord, that you would send your Holy Spirit to convict us of our sin. To show us the way in which we are to go. And most of all, to point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. This is the fourth in our short four-sermon series about being ambassadors for Christ, that is, sharing the gospel with others. And we have looked previously at our obligation as Christians to speak the gospel to others. We know about man's need. We know about the glorious God who meets that need. And we know how that need is met in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Today we look at the obligation Jesus gives to us not only to speak, but also to live a testimony to the gospel. 
And so our main text this morning comes from the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is a summary of why this is important. Matthew chapter 5 begins with Jesus describing the character of the Christian in verses 2 through 10. He says that a Christian is one who is poor in spirit, who is meek, who hungers and thirsts after righteousness, who is merciful, who is pure in heart, who is a peacemaker. This describes who a Christian is. And then our Lord Jesus Christ moves in verses 11 and 12 and describes for us the world's reaction to the Christian and his character. And the reaction of the world is to persecute the Christian for righteousness sake. It is to attack the people of God. To say all sorts of evil against the people of God. And then Jesus proceeds in verses 13 through 16 to tell us how we are to respond to the world's reaction. So I want us to see this right from the beginning, that what Jesus is telling us in verses 13 through 16 is not merely for a perfect scenario. It's not just when everything is going well, when all the dots are lined up, this is how we are to live. No, Jesus tells us that this is the way we are to live in the midst of trial and persecution and slander. This is a part of our calling as a Christian. And so this morning, I would like us to see three things from our text that Jesus brings to us. First, our calling. The calling that Jesus has placed upon us. Second, a warning that Jesus gives to us related to our calling. And then third, the motivation for living out our calling. Calling, warning, and motivation. That's what is before us. So let's begin then with Jesus telling us what our calling is as Christians by using two metaphors. First, Jesus tells us that we are the salt of the earth. And then he says that we are the light of the world. And each one of these gives a picture of why the world needs Jesus. Each gives us a view of how Jesus wants us to live. So let's start with Jesus' statement in verse 13. Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Jesus' statement here is a calling to be salt. Now, I want you to notice the nature of the statement. It is not aspirational. It is not that Jesus says, I hope that you can be the salt of the earth. It is not, you should think about trying to be the salt of the earth. It's all, it is not something that we are to look forward to being. And then secondly, Jesus is not giving us a call to do a certain thing or to try to become something we are not. Jesus doesn't say, act like the salt of the earth. He doesn't say, if you do these things, you will be the salt of the earth. No, this is a statement of reality. 
you are the salt of the earth. It's something we already are because we are Christians, followers of Jesus. And so right away we see that Jesus is not giving us a choice. It's not as if those among us who wish to be the best Christians should strive to be salt. No. Every single one of us who profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who know that our sins are forgiven by the work of Jesus Christ, each and every one is salt. Jesus is telling us that a Christian is a type of person who is different from every other type of person in the world. And we see this in the emphasis of Jesus' statement. We might expand our translation to give you a bit of a feel for this by saying, you, really you, you only are the salt of the earth. Jesus is emphatic in his direction, in his statement, there is no way for us to miss this. It is not just that there is someone out there somewhere who is salt, or that you might be able to be salt, but it is a certain categorical statement. You are the salt of the earth. Now this is an immediate challenge for us. Because if we are honest with ourselves, we are often afraid that we will be unlike the world. We don't want to stand out. We don't want to be different from everyone around us. We don't want to be the subjects of ridicule, of persecution, of slander. But Jesus is telling us that this is not an option. We are different already because of what he has done. And we are not just a bit different, but we are fundamentally different from those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. There is, for example, the difference between meat and salt. Now, if you don't believe me, when you go home for lunch, cook yourself up a steak, grind it up, and sprinkle it over your vegetables. Let's see how that works for you. It's not something that we normally think of or would do, right? Because meat is nothing like salt. It's different. Or perhaps this would be a better challenge for you. Try to get a bunch of salt and maybe with some water, form it into a cake like a pork chop or a filet, and get out your fork and knife and start to cut up the salt and eat it like meat. That doesn't sound very appetizing, does it? No, because these two things are completely different. So what is it that salt does? Well, the first thing I think that we think about that what salt does is that it flavors. It flavors food. Now, if you have ever been told by a doctor that you need to cut out salt from your diet, you know exactly what I am talking about. Because salt adds flavor to meat. It adds flavor to vegetables, to all sorts of food. As a matter of fact, all of the tastiest foods are filled with salt. Some of them have much too much salt for us to consume, but we love them anyway because of the taste. Salt flavors. The second thing that salt does it is, is that it preserves, especially meat. Now, we have to understand that we come to this text 
as 21st century Americans, every single one of us has a refrigerator and a freezer in our home. And so, to us, the thought of preserving meat does not really compute. In Jesus' day, there was no refrigeration. There was no electricity. There were no preservative chemicals. You, You can go home today and take a steak and stick it in your refrigerator. And four days later, you could pull it out and eat it. And it would be just fine. In Jesus' day, if you let meat sit out for four days, it would rot. It would become inedible. It would not only not be delicious, it would be harmful to you. You could get sick from eating it. But in Jesus' day, the only way to preserve meat for any length of time was by salting it. That is, you mixed in with the meat a good bit of salt, and the salt would preserve the meat from rotting. Salt was the only way to do this. As a matter of fact, just as essential to an army on the march or to explorers in a ship as weapons and fresh water were, salt was just as important. Because if they didn't have salt, they couldn't preserve their meat and they could not march through enemy territory. Salt was the only way to preserve meat. And so what Jesus is saying is that as Christians, we are the only way that the world is flavored. The only way that the the world can see true joy. The only way that the world can see blessing. True meaning. It is through the lives of believers. We flavor the world because we know Jesus. At the same time, Christians are what preserves a world without God. We must be in the world to bring Jesus and his gospel to the world. And so what Jesus is doing here is not just telling us about ourselves as believers, but he's also giving us an insight into the nature of the world. Because salt and meat are different, as we've said. Jesus tells us that we are salt, but note he says we are the salt of the earth. The world needs salt. Why? Because by itself, the world is corrupted. The world is decaying. The world needs salt. And so Jesus is telling us that the world's view of itself is wrong, even dangerous. Because the world thinks that it is fine. In fact, the world thinks that it is getting better and better all of the time. That each and every year, it is moving closer and closer to perfection. The world acts as if it's on some great road of progress. This, in essence, is the philosophy and theology behind evolution. That if you just take enough time, things are continually getting better all of the time until all of our problems will be solved. But Jesus says just the opposite. He says that the world is not getting better. And it makes perfect sense that he would say that. Because he has told us that the world is infected by sin. People do not naturally get better. They do not seek after God. 
They do not love and help their fellow man. They are selfish, focused on their own desires. They are caught up in sin. And this rots them and the world that they live in. The only hope for the world is that Christians who have been transformed by Jesus Christ and who are now different from the world combat the decay that is in the world. And they combat that decay with the gospel. Because we carry the gospel with us, our lives are to be marked by the gospel. We are to live in a way that shows that we believe the gospel, that we trust the gospel, that we have been changed by the gospel. Everywhere we go, we display the change that Jesus makes. <coughs> the second metaphor that Jesus uses is in verses 14 through 16. He tells us that we are the light of the world. Now again, just what we said about the declaration Jesus made about salt is true here about light. It is not that we are to strive to be light in the world. This is a statement of fact, an indicative statement. You are the light. Once again, Jesus is also emphatic in his statement. You, he begins, really you. We might even say, only you are light in the world. Now, it is important to remember how Jesus' audience would have heard this. I think perhaps in the world we live in, we take light even more for granted than refrigeration. Because we live in a time and a place where it's practically impossible to get away from light. There is light everywhere. There is light in our homes. There is light in our yards, light on our roads. As a matter of fact, if you want to get away from the light, for example, to get a clear view of the stars in the sky, you have to go way away from all sorts of people out into the country where it is dark. Everywhere we are, we have light. Light is at our beck and call. All we have to do is flip a switch. As a matter of fact, we don't even have to do that anymore. We just say, Alexa... Turn on the light, and it comes. But in Jesus' day, when the sun went down, there was nothing to do but to go to sleep. You couldn't turn on a lamp. There were no lights on the road so you could travel. There was no outdoor floodlights. No, all there were were some small candles. And they were expensive, so they were not used much. And the light they gave was not very powerful. So imagine now that you are living in a world surrounded by thick darkness. The kind of darkness where you could wave your hand in front of your face and not see it. That's how dark it is. Again, Jesus is making a statement about the world we live in. Some think that the Sermon on the Mount is the kinder, gentler, uncritical Jesus giving teachings. They think they can just take up his teachings in the Sermon on the Mount and ignore the rest of the Bible and somehow live good lives. But the truth is, is that Jesus, what Jesus is saying here is that the world is a spiritually dark 
place. Now, what does that mean? Think about real physical darkness. It is deep. Darkness can almost be felt, can't it? Because it can't be seen. It surrounds us. It envelops us. And darkness is also dangerous. Have you ever tried to walk around your house in blackout darkness? There is no telling what you will crash into, what you will step on, what you will hit your foot on. But now think about darkness in this sense. There are islands who have on their shores cliffs, steep cliffs. Now imagine you are walking on this island near this cliff in the darkness. Now, if it was daylight, you would not want to go anywhere near the end of this cliff, at least if you're me. I don't like that feeling. I'm glad for someone else to tell me what the cliff looks like over there. But now imagine you can't see where the cliff is. You're just walking in darkness. You're completely unaware that a cliff even exists. Think of the danger that that darkness is. You could walk right off the cliff and not even know it until it was too late. Jesus is saying that the world is a dangerous place like that. So Jesus tells us that as Christians, we are to be light in a dark world. We are to be like Jesus who is the light of the world, to penetrate the darkness where people live. To penetrate the darkness with the gospel of grace. As we live our lives, we roll back the darkness of a sinful world. Now, what does that mean? It means that as we live in our marriages, we show the world what it means to follow Jesus and to reject self. It means that in our families, we show how Jesus makes us able to be a blessing to others. It means that when we are at work, we show that God is ultimate, and we work as unto Him, not just for a paycheck. In sum, it means we live lives that testify that God exists, that He has saved us, and that He has changed us. Because we live in a world that is dark and ignorant and desperately needs the influence of Christians. That is why Jesus has left us here on earth after saving us. Have you ever wondered why, after we profess faith in Jesus Christ, after we come to faith and are saved, why we are not just whisked up to heaven? It's because Jesus has a task for us here. He has made us salt and light in this world. Jesus has work for you to do here on earth. So let me ask you this. Are you looking for ways to be salt and light in the world? Are you looking for ways to be a source of wholesomeness and to combat rottenness? To shine a light in a dark place so that the truth can be seen? Jesus is telling you here this morning that that is your calling. But there is also a warning that Jesus gives to us. 
Two, actually. One related to each of salt and light. Jesus starts by warning us that we can lose our saltiness. Look at verse 13. He says, But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now what Jesus is referring to here is the taste or the flavor or the savor of salt. Now, again, we might find this difficult to understand because if your home is anything like mine, you have a big container of salt that has been sitting in your pantry for years, maybe decades. Salt doesn't go bad. You can't leave milk out on the counter overnight, but you can leave salt on the counter for decades, and it is fine. But in Jesus' day, salt was mined. And they did not have the procedures and the technology that we have to take out all of the impurities of the salt that was mined. And so, if these impurities are not separated out from the salt, over a period of time, they would draw away the chemical properties of the salt. And eventually, the salt would lose its taste. And it would lose its ability to preserve meat, it would become essentially useless. As a matter of fact, it would become less than useless because salt that was no longer salty could not be made salt again. Now, you can imagine this. You can salt meat to make it salty, but you can't salt salt. Once it's lost its saltiness, it's gone forever. And that's exactly what Jesus says in verse 13. You couldn't use it for food. It would ruin the food. You couldn't even use it for fertilizer in the yard because it would not help the ground. The only thing that you could do with it is to find a patch of land that was maybe soft and muddy. And you could spread it out over that land to bring some firmness to the ground. That's what Jesus means when he says it's good for nothing but for people to walk on. So how can we as Christians lose our saltiness? Well, first, we have to realize what made us salty in the first place. It was the work of Jesus making us into his image. And as salt, we affect the earth because Jesus affects the earth. We bring Jesus to the world and we show how Jesus makes a difference in our lives. So we need to fill our lives with the means that Jesus has given to us to grow our relationship with Jesus. The more we are with Jesus, the more we will be like him, the more salty we will be. Now we've talked about these means before. We call them the means of grace. First, you need to feed on God's word. Now I want you to notice the phrase that I've used. I didn't say you need to read God's Word. I didn't even say you need to study God's Word. I said you need to feed on God's Word. The Word of God needs to be for you like food is for you. We need to be in the Word each and every day. How can we know how Jesus wants us to live if we don't listen to Him? And how can we hear him 
if we don't go where he speaks. <coughs> he speaks in his word. Let me ask you this. Are you neglecting time in God's word? Do you spend time reading God's word? Talking about it with others. Studying it daily to know more and more about God and about the duty that he requires of you? If not, then you are in danger of losing your saltiness. If you are not in God's word, you are not feeding on what makes you different from the world. You will take in more and more of the world. Your life will then begin to show that. And you will be less and less flavorful and less and less preserving in the world. Second, you need to be in prayer. You need to spend time with God. You need to pour out your heart to God. You need to seek after God. Now again, this is not just once in a great while. We are all familiar with the crisis that comes in our life, whether it is a medical crisis or a financial crisis or a relationship crisis that literally brings us to our knees and we know we have no hope but we have to go to God in prayer. What I'm talking about is more than that. It is prayer each and every day. Having a life marked by prayer. Going to the Lord. Seeking His wisdom. Seeking His Spirit. His power that we might be more and more like Jesus. Third, you need to gather with God's people. We all need encouragement in the Christian life. Salt is not something that works one grain at a time. I don't know about you, but when I prepare for myself a nice bowl of buttered popcorn, I don't put one grain of salt on it. I turn the shaker upside down and I shake heavily for several seconds. And if my wife is not in the room, for several more seconds. Because I want that salty flavor. I want the salt to do its work. And it does it in bunches. You shake salt out of the shaker. It works together. And it is similar with Christians. You cannot expect to retain your saltiness, that is, your distinctness from others, if you are neglecting gathering worship and fellowship with other believers. It amazes me that in our day and age, we lament the changes in our society. We look at films and books and magazines, and we wonder, how did it come that all of the filth that we see is before our eyes? We look at our society and the way people speak to each other, treat each other, and we wonder, how has this happened? What can we do to fix it? Beloved, the problem is not that we have different congressmen. The problem is not the Supreme Court or who sits in the Oval Office. You want to know what the problem is? The problem is that 50 years ago, When statistically you described a regular churchgoer, they were in church two to three times a week. Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday night. 
And now, and I can produce the statistics to back this up, a regular church attender is considered someone who comes two to three times a month. We're not gathering together. We're not encouraging each other. We're not sharpening each other. We're not under the word of God. We're not singing the praises of God. We're not coming together corporately to pray for each other. Is it any surprise that the church is losing its saltiness? Jesus has given us these means so that we might remain distinct and have the effect that he has called us to on the world. There is a second warning, and it relates to Jesus' call to us to be light. Now, this is an example of how wonderfully balanced the teaching of Jesus is. Have you ever noticed that? That we strive to have balance and we often fail, but Jesus' teaching is always perfectly balanced. Because you see, if all Jesus had told us was not to lose our saltiness, then we might be tempted to avoid the world because we don't want to be made impure. But Jesus knows that salt is useless in the salt shaker. It has to be spread on the meat to have effect. And so we must go out in the world to have effect. And so Jesus then warns us against hiding our light from the world. He makes such a self-evident point. Every young person here understands this. Right, kids? When you are in darkness, now I'm just going to and say that maybe one of your siblings is afraid of the dark and you find a flashlight and you turn it on, do you get a thick, heavy blanket and cover up the flashlight? Of course not. Why? Because that would defeat the purpose of even having the light. The whole point of the light is to shine and to dispel the darkness. That's what Jesus is telling us. Is there anything more foolish than making a light and then covering it up? You see, Jesus then immediately applies that truth to our being light in the world in verse 16. He says, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus says, In the same way, you have been made light by me, and you are to be a light in the world. So let your light shine before others. Jesus has made us lights in order that we might shine. That is our purpose. We are the city that has been set on a hill. It cannot be hidden. Jesus has done that with us intentionally. We are not to become so absorbed with the world that we become like the world, but we are not to become so aloof from the world that we are no good. Let me give you a very practical application this morning. Do you have friends who are not Christians? Do you speak with co-workers who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you spend time with your neighbors who don't know Jesus? Do you look for opportunities to spend time with them? Now, I'm not saying... Do you look for one-off opportunities to read them a Bible verse? That's not what I'm saying. 
Are you being salt and light in their world? Are you spending time with them? That might be sharing a hobby. Maybe your neighbor likes to work on cars and so do you. Maybe your neighbor likes to run and so do you. And maybe all you do with them for a period of time is work on cars and run. And share your life with them. Do you invite them into your home so they can see what a Christian home looks like? How Christian husbands and wives treat each other. How they're thankful to the Lord. Do you give them opportunities to see what Jesus has done in your life? Now again, I'm not telling you not to speak. But you should be acting as well. That's what Jesus is saying. We are not here on earth just to learn more about Jesus in theory. We're not here in church to benefit ourselves. Jesus has given us a calling. We are to be engaged with the world, both with our words and with our lives, to show others Jesus. Now, one final brief point. What is to be our motivation for living our lives in this way? Now, as I'm talking about living your lives before other people, you may be saying to yourself, but pastor, isn't there something in the Bible about not drawing attention to ourselves? Didn't didn't Jesus say something about that? Well, in fact, he did. He did right here in the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 6, he says in verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. In verse 2, he applies that to our giving. Thus, when you give to the needy, (coughs) sound no trumpet before you. And then in verse 6, he says we shouldn't be public in our prayers. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. Now, does this contradict what I've just been saying? No. And I want you to notice why. In each of these instances, Jesus is criticizing acting a certain way for a certain motive. It's not that Jesus is saying, don't give, don't pray, don't try to be righteous. He's not even saying that the Christian life is to be a very private thing and never acted out in public. If that were the case, then Jesus would be a very poor Christian. No, what Jesus is warning us against is acting this way in order to get glory for ourselves. Notice in verse 1 of chapter 6, Jesus says, in order to be seen by them, with the implication that you will be rewarded when they see you. And again in verse 2, that they may be praised by others, again implying a reward for what we have done. Jesus is telling us that to truly be salt and light, we must act knowing that we owe everything to Jesus. We are not trying to show others how great we are so that others might praise us. But we are trying to show them how great Jesus is, that they might praise and imitate Him. That's the point made both in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, and 1 Peter 2, verse 12. We are to let our light shine so that others may see our good works. Peter puts it this way. 
Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. We are to let our light shine so that others may see our good works. And what will they do from that? They will give glory to the Father. Even more, Peter says, that in the midst of speaking against you as an evildoer, because they do not want to honor God, they will be bound by the power of God to glorify God in the day of judgment by our good works. Your good works are a testimony to Jesus Christ and what He has done. They have eternal value because of that. You are called to be salt and light in a decaying and dark world. What does that look like in your life? How are you interacting with others who don't know Jesus? Are you showing them the difference that Jesus makes in your life? Are you taking opportunities to lay the foundation for the gospel? This is your calling as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not an option. Jesus tells you, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Let's pray.